Good morning, everybody. I want to dive right into the passage that we're going to be, that I'm going to be speaking from today. It's in Mark chapter 11. You'll see it on the screen behind me. I'm going to start reading in verse 12, read a couple verses, and then jump to verse 20. All right? The next day, as they, that's the disciples and Jesus, were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. And verse 20 says, in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. So Jesus answered and said, have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things that he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. He says, speak to the mountain and all of that rock and all of that mountain will be cast into the sea and it'll happen if you believe. Well, that, that's a tough pill to swallow. My talk today is about mountain moving faith. But before I get there, I wanna spend a couple minutes showing you something that I have never seen before that was very uh, cool and it's the fig tree part of this narrative. It's the fig tree part of the story. All of this is taking place just days before Jesus is about to go to the cross. In the same week that this is happening, at the end of the week, Jesus will go and he will be tortured to death and hung on a cross. Um, and his disciples have just a few more days with him, so he's giving them some really important stuff, stuff that they really need in these last days on earth. See, the whole world is about to experience a death, and the whole world is about to experience a birth. A, a religious system whereby if you obey enough rules, then you can earn God's favor is about to die. And a way of relating to God by faith and walking with God by faith and a salvation that is coming to the human race by faith is about to be birthed. It's funny that on, um, on the Monday of the last week that Jesus is on the earth, he, he, he comes into Jerusalem and he's sitting on a donkey and the whole city welcomes him as if he were a king. They, they come out and they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they, and they put some garments on the ground so that the donkey wouldn't even touch the dirt. They put palm leaves down so the donkey wouldn't even touch the dirt. They, they, they treated him like they were welcoming a king. We really don't know what else happened that day, but Jesus and his disciples wandered around Jerusalem, saw some things. But they had friends who lived in Bethany, and Bethany wasn't far from Jerusalem. And so they went to Bethany in the evening. And in the morning, Jesus is on mission. 
And we find out that the mission that he's on is to deal with the corruption that's in the temple. That's his mission for the day. And he's on mission and he's heading back to Jerusalem and he's hungry. It's early and he's hungry and he sees a fig tree in the distance. And the fig tree is in leaf. And he comes up, when he gets close to the fig tree, he sees there are no figs, but there are not supposed to be any figs on the tree because it's in leaf and it is just not the season to produce figs. And for some reason, he curses this tree. I never understood this. The poor fig tree, it's just being a fig tree. It's, it's like going out into the orchards and trying to get cherries or apples today. There's no cherries, there's no apples because it's not the season for apples or cherries. And this fig tree is just hanging out, waiting for its figs to show up and Jesus doesn't find any fruit in a season that there should be no fruit. And he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. What I discovered as I began to look into this is that Jesus is using this fig tree as a powerful illustrated parable. It's an ingenious way to communicate truth on many different levels with just one picture, with just one illustration, with one miracle. You see, in the Old Testament, Israel is often um, this symbolized, the symbol for Israel is the fig tree. And Jesus is providing a prophetic sign for his disciples to see. And it's not going to make sense for another 40 years, but it will make sense to them eventually. See, right after he curses this tree, he walks into Jerusalem and he makes a mess of the temple. He walks into Jerusalem and, and, and then he overturns the corruption in the temple and he chases them out. You see, by the first century, uh, the temple had become a place of, of a prophet for the, the religious leaders. There was a currency that exchange that took place at... In, inflated rates because pilgrims would come from all over the region to worship at the temple. And in order to worship at the temple, they had to buy like a lamb or a dove or something to, to atone for their sins. And so not only were they selling these, these animals at an inflated rate, but in order to buy the animal, you had to have the right currency. So they're making money on you every time you spend a penny. And Jesus, this infuriated him. I think it's interesting, though, that Jesus had been witnessing this his entire life. And especially the three years of his ministry, he, 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 he'd been watching them do this. They didn't just start this this week. This had been going on for a long time. And in three years of his ministry, he says nothing to them about this. But just days before he goes to the cross, he makes a statement so loud. He goes in and he boots them out. He overturns their tables. He takes this part, this, this corruption, and he, and he eradicates it from the temple. And then he says this, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you, you made it something very different. You made it something else. You see, Jesus uses this fruitless fig tree as a metaphor for the judgment that is coming on 
the temple and the corruption of the religious leaders who are fruitless themselves. They are barren in their, their ministry right now. And so this judgment takes place. What Jesus did by cleaning out the temple was a picture of what was going to happen not 40 years later when the Romans came in and they completely destroyed the temple and it withered from the root. And in 70 AD, the temple itself was brought to nothing. And so then they go outside. Okay, they've done this thing. So, so the fig tree thing is, is, is really just the sandwich on either side of the cleaning of the temple. And they go outside and Peter sees that the tree that was cursed just earlier that day has been withered from the root. And he says to Jesus, look at the tree that you cursed. And Jesus has the strangest reply. He says, have faith in God. What does that mean? Well, I'm, well, I'm, I'm talking to you about the fig tree and you're saying have faith in God? You see, then Jesus points probably to Mount, the Mount of Olives. And he says, if you have faith and you believe you can cause this mound to be thrown into the sea. And scholars have tried, I mean, they can identify which mound it literally was, but what is the metaphor about? Is it possible to actually have the kind of faith where you could make all of that rock move and be thrown into the sea? Maybe. I mean, he said it. But before we go moving mountains that have nothing to do with us, why don't we start addressing the mountains that have everything to do with us? And we have all got mountains in our lives. A mountain of regret that you just cannot get over. The abuse that you suffered at the hands of your father, you just cannot get over that. The betrayal of your, of your spouse that you just cannot get over. The pain in your heart, the disappointment that you have with other human beings or the church or something, you just can't get to the other side. It's a mountain in your life. And commentators and scholars realize that he's talking about discouragement. He's talking about hopelessness. He's talking about sickness and disease and sin that you just cannot get over. And almost all of them would agree that ultimately the mountain that Jesus is talking about is the mountain of unbelief because it is the mother of all sins where you have disappointment and discouragement and hopelessness and fear, you will find sin at the very root of that, or you will find unbelief at the very root of that. You see, faith can move mountains, but doubt can create them. Unbelief creates mountains. How many of us, you know, have, have got doubt we, we, we doubt that we will ever get out of debt and it just looms over us and hope deferred makes the heart sick. You doubt that you will ever get through this addiction. This thing will never let go of me. You doubt that anybody will ever choose you and love you and be faithful to you. You doubt that you'll never do anything significant in this life. And if those mountains are out in the middle of your heart and in the middle of your mind, I promise you that's the stuff that needs to be moved. And Jesus knows that these, 
these 12 disciples, he knows the things that God has planned for them. He knows that, that, that they are the foundation upon which centuries of believers will build and the world will hear the gospel, will hear the message of God's forgiveness and God's salvation. He knows what these men will suffer and they all suffered by the end of their lives. And he's saying your unbelief will get in the way of everything that the Father wants to do in you and everything that the Father wants to do through you. You see, the scriptures are abundantly clear about these things. That wherever there was unbelief, Jesus could do very little. In fact, he was in his own hometown. And the Bible says in the book of um, Mark chapter 6, it says, and he could not do any miracles there. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. But he could not do any miracles there except for heal a few people. And the Bible says he was absolutely aghast, amazed at their unbelief. Where there's unbelief, Jesus' hands are tied. He couldn't do it then and he can't do it now. Unbelief has always been the mountain. It has always been the thing that keeps God from moving in you and through you freely and powerfully. You see, there, there, there's so many of us, we're sitting in here and we, we nod our heads and we probably believe right. But there is so much unbelief even in the church we nod at the right things, but we go out and live our lives and the way we live our lives demonstrates that we really don't believe God works any differently in our lives. We don't believe we're any different than anybody else. I love the story in Luke chapter one of um, uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth. Zacharias and Elizabeth, they were good people. They are good people. God is pleased with them. And he sends his archangel, Gabriel, not just an angel, but an archangel to them. And Gabriel says, you, God has heard your prayers. He has heard your prayers. Elizabeth's going to have a son. And not only is she going to have a son, but while, before the baby is even born, he is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this boy is going to grow up and he is going to walk in the power of Elijah. And your son, your son is going to make a way for my son to come into the earth. And your son is going to prepare a way for the salvation of all people. Your son is going to prepare a way for the salvation of God. To which Zacharias, he, he, he's standing there listening to this whole, whole thing. And he's, you know, he's thinking to himself, how can this be true? I'm old. And Elizabeth, well, she's, she's old. All of his life, it's been this mountain. The mountain between him and Elizabeth having a son. Don't you think we tried? We have tried everything. We have believed against belief and she is still barren. The girl is barren. That's all there's to it. 
And the angel says to him, because you do not believe my words, you'll be silent until my words come to pass in their appointed time. It's like the angel of the Lord is saying, God has purposely chosen Elizabeth. He's chosen you. But I got to get your doubt, your unbelief out of the way. And so you're going to be mute. You're not going to be able to say one thing until your baby's born. Got to get you out of the way so I can do, so God can do what he's purposed to do because your unbelief is going to sabotage this thing. And Zacharias is mute until the day that John is born. And God has revealed himself to that family. You see, faith begins where God's will is known. That's where it begins. But faith's purest expression is obedience. It's purest expression is action, is stepping into the thing that you've heard from God, the thing that your truth, you know it's true, it's stepping into it. That's its purest form. James says, what good is it if someone says they have faith, but they don't do anything? He said, faith by itself without accompanying action is dead. You know something? There's a lot of dead dreams in this room. There's a lot of things that God birthed in you and there was life around it and you, 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 you believed it and you held on to it, but you did nothing with it and it has died in you. It has withered in you. Christians, we're so good at talking. We talk and talk. myself chief among all. We just, yeah, we give lip service to this stuff. And if we actually leaned into a fraction of the things we talk about, God would see our faith and we begin to see him moving on our behalf more. I love the story in Luke 5 where Jesus comes into town, and this is a big deal. When Jesus comes into town in the first century, the whole town stops. He comes into town and he, he finds this house or this place where he's teaching in. You see, this, the first century hadn't seen miracles. The, 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 the people here had not heard of anything like this. It, for 400 years, the heavens were silent. And Jesus walks in, and, and I love what it says in the, the, um, the New Living Translation. It says, and the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. I mean, he was pulsating with healing power, and the town knew it. And so the whole town comes, except for one guy. One guy who was stuck on the mat that he'd lived his entire life because he was paralyzed. But he had friends. He had good friends. And they knew if they could just get him within arm's reach of that healing anointing, that powerful thing that was on Jesus, then they knew, they knew this could change, this could be everything for him. And so they grab this mat and they start dragging him to where Jesus is. But they know the, the place is going to be packed. There's no way we'll get in. They're, I guarantee you they're already thinking how to get in another way. And I promise you, getting onto the roof of that place was infinitely easier than it would be to get onto this roof. Those houses were all interconnected and there was a way through a neighbor's house and out the window or out a door. But Jesus is in there teaching and all of a sudden, 
Stuff starts falling from the ceiling. All of a sudden, dust is everywhere. All of a sudden, debris is falling. Jesus' perfect white garment is getting dust all over it. It's disruptive. And Jesus looks up, and instead of being annoyed, he's amazed. He's amazed. And the Bible says, seeing their faith, he says to the man on the mat, your sins are forgiven. He said, son, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. Seeing, the room was full of need. The room was full of people who had come wanting, hoping, praying for a miracle. But these guys gave Jesus something to see. That is the kind of faith that gets God's attention. I love what Mother Teresa, she said, faith in action is love, and love in action is service. By transforming that faith into living acts of love, we put ourselves in contact with God himself and Christ our Lord. These guys just trying to help a friend, and by doing what they did and serving and loving and caring, they, they put themselves in contact with that beautiful healing anointing that's coming off of Jesus. So let me ask you this. What does your mountain look like? What is your mountain? I, I heard about a friend who, who smoked three packs a day for 30 years. That's a lot, I think. Three packs a day for 30 years. And he, he, he's a believer and he, want, he, he wanted to be free. It, it's such a powerful addiction, right? He wanted, he prayed, man. He patched. He did penance. He did everything. He did every, got his friends to pray. And he could not break this addiction. And one day, one day he decided, I'm going to give Jesus something to see. It's not much, but it's something. And before he broke into his first pack, you know, he opened it up and before he smoked his first cigarette, he took three cigarettes and threw them in the garbage and went through that pack, did the same thing on the second pack. He feel, felt like he'd won the lottery. He'd gone through a whole day and smoked nine less cigarettes than he'd done for the last 30 years. And he kept doing it, and he kept doing it. A few months later, he was down to two packs of cigarettes. He felt like a marathon runner, like after doing three packs a day, and now he's down to two packs. It took him three years, but with it, by the time three years passed, he was finally free. Felt better than he did his entire life. The point is, is that, yeah, you got a mountain, and you just want Jesus to wave his hand and make it go away. But you know what? you got some skin in the game, and it might take three years, and it might take five years. But faith is required, and faith in action is mandatory. I was listening to Joe Olstein. I like him because he's so darn pretty. Um, um, and uh, he, he's perfect. Like he, 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 he raises his voice, lowers his voice. Nothing changes. It's like airbrushed. And uh, anyway, he was talking about a friend of his who, when he was young, had this inner burning, this longing to be in the ministry, to preach. But no one 
no opportunity, no, nobody let him teach. Nobody let him preach. They didn't believe in him. They didn't. And he'd waited. He said, but inside it was growing and growing and he couldn't stand it anymore. So he decided to do something, a simple act of faith, which was huge for him. He booked a small high school auditorium and then he took out ads in the community paper announcing the launching of his new ministry. He invited everybody he knew. He invited all of his relatives. He invited his friends. He put posters up. He hired a sound technician. He went to this, the auditorium in the middle of the afternoon and set up chairs and walked around them and prayed around them, did everything he knew how to do. And by 6.30 at night, not a single person had showed up. The meeting started at 7. And at quarter to seven, crickets. And quarter after seven, he was so discouraged. Not one relative, not one person showed up. And he's sitting at the front with his face in his hands and he thinks, well, I've come this far and the building's already paid for, the technician's already paid for. And he gets up, takes the microphone and preaches his entire sermon. He was preaching for almost an hour. When he finished preaching, he gave an altar call to no one, the, to the chairs. He gave an altar call and he invited them to come and give their lives to Christ. A door opened from the side of the auditorium and the high school caretaker, the old caretaker walked in, went to the front and said, I want to give my life to Christ. And he said, and it wasn't even your sermon because that wasn't that good. <laughs> He said, it's the fact that you, you, you're in here and there's nobody in here and yet you're passionate about this. And he said, you got me. And he hears his voice from the back, me too. And the sound technician comes to the front. <laughs> the entire auditorium came to Jesus. <laughs> Both of them, right? And maybe the real miracle here is the fact that that's a, that gave him enough courage and enough encouragement that God was actually going to use him. And he leaned into his ministry and his ministry grew slowly. Today he's my age and today he's flourishing in ministry and thousands and thousands of people's lives have been changed because he dared to get up on a stage. Let's give Jesus something to see. Let's give him something that, 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 that he can see that we are actually serious about wanting to move into the things. That's when the mountains come down. I'm going to invite Tina Marie and Jeffrey and the band to come on up. I'll land. What dream is alive in your heart? Can you identify? If you can identify it, then take one step into it. If you can identify it, just take one step into it. So I'd been in the ministry. I got into the ministry in my early 20s. Um, yeah, early mid-20s. And um, I'd been uh, preaching and whatnot for about 10 years. And then I had this, in, this desire, which is really counterintuitive, this desire to, 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 to get more education, to go back and get some more tools. And, 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 I, and I said to my wife, 
this is just not me, but I have this desire to go to seminary. And I want to study theology seriously. And I said, I know, that's crazy, right? Because I barely survived Bible school. You know, I'm so ADD, honestly. If you're not juggling and, and, and rollerblading while you're teaching me Jesus, and I, I'm out, but I'm gone. And seminary is like Bible school on steroids. Most of the profs in our, my school were really good. There were a few that were just put out to pasture, and this was their last step before the grave. And, um, and so... Um, so I said to my wife, I think I'm, I think I'm supposed to go to, 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 to seminary. And the closest seminary to where we lived in Calgary at the time was an hour and a half away. It was in a little town called Three Hills, Alberta. And Prairie Grad School was there. I, I, uh, the interesting thing is that this was just something I couldn't explain inside of me. Because the truth of the matter is, I didn't have $25,000 to get a master's degree in theology. And Lord knows I didn't have time. But I couldn't deny what was going on inside of me. All I had was this desire. And I knew it came from God because it just didn't make any sense with the way I'm wired. I'd spoken at uh, Prairie Bible Institute numbers of times and it just so happened that I was going up to do a conference on the campus uh, right around this time. And in between the talks, I wandered over into the seminary and I just walked around it. I remember sitting in the library, smelling the books. No, I'm not like one-on-one, -on -one, but just like kind of collectively smelling the books. Because <laughs> that would be creepy, right? And smelling all of the books. Anyway, um, and um, I walked through the hallways and I remember saying uh, out loud, this was my little act of faith. It was so pathetically little that only Jesus heard it. And I said, I belong here. I belong here. I belong here. And then I went on the second floor. I actually belong here. I belong in this place. And um, it's funny, my wife, when I'm processing and thinking through stuff, you believe it or not, I get real quiet. And I've been quiet for weeks. And, uh, and she can tell. And so one day, out of nowhere, she says to me, you know what we're going to do? We're going we're gonna to trade one of our cars in for a really little car. And you could drive to seminary and back every day, and it really won't cost us much in gas. What do you think about that? And we began to talk about this thing as if it were real. And the more we talked about it, the bigger it got inside of me, until finally I couldn't help it. I said, I'm just going to go and talk to, to the registrar. And I, I, I talked to the registrar, and I told him, I live in Calgary, I don't know how much time is required here and all of that, but I, I'd like to tell me more. She said, well, if you could be patient. She said, if you could be patient, um, we, we're moving the seminary to Calgary next year. And I said, all right, I could be patient. Well, and the very next year, I began to study theology. I still couldn't afford it. I still didn't have time. But Jesus said this, he said, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes those things he says will become to pass. He will have whatever he says. And I'm telling you, that was a mountain. 
That was my, I was working full time, raising a family, and then going to school full time. And I leaned into that mountain for three years and the mountain moved. And the mountain moved. You know, my wife and I said, we still don't know how we paid for that thing. We still don't know how we paid for that thing. You can't move mountains by talking about them. You can't move mountains by thinking about them. Only God can move mountains. But faith and courage and obedience will move God. Got into my first semester and that, that, was, that was a whole new level of learning that I was trying to get used to. And just to try and stay focused, because when I say I'm ADD, I know I am, okay? I took my laptop and I thought, how can I discipline myself to learn? I came here to learn, I wanna learn. And so I, I just started typing, trying to type as fast as a professor could talk. And eventually I realized that I can do it. And it was a game for me, every class, just to keep up with the professor. Well, then I got a, so fast that I, he, would run or she, he would run a rabbit trail and then I would kind of put boxes and shadows and make it look real nice. What I didn't realize is that un, unlike any other learning experience, when it goes through my fingers into my brain, it sticks. I barely had to study. I barely, I, you know, I, it was there. And the other thing that is fantastic about that is just in an effort to combat my ADD, I put these notes together only to find out the class is full of people that take terrible notes. I filed them, I mean, I clipped them together, put them in a duotang and uh, sold them for 200 bucks a copy. <laughs> I, paid for, I paid for over half of that master's degree just by selling my notes. I, you know, the, the professors, yeah, right? And then I would give a pro, the professors, a, you know, a transcript of their entire class, which they never had. And that would bump me from a 50 at least to a 60, right? You know, like that. There's gotta be value in that. I would have never figured any of that out had I not taken a step. Had I not stepped into it and done something tangible to say, Jesus, I believe this is from you. I wanna pray. I wanna pray for you. What is the dream that is slowly dying inside of you? When once it was so full of life, it was so, it gave you so much joy and energy. What is that? Is it possible that this talk today was to reignite that inside of you? And so I'm going to pray for those of you that, that have a dream that you, that's just become dead because you've not leaned into it more than your words or more than your praying or more than your thinking. And I'm going to ask you to do something. I asked the first service to do this too. When I start praying, if you know that the, the dream that you're supposed to step into I'm gonna invite you to make your very first step by simply standing up. You know, Chad will often ask us to raise hands if we are responding to the message. You know why he does that? You know why he does that? Because we need to give Jesus something to see. It is a tangible stepping into a decision that you're making. So if you've got something 
that you know that God wants you to step into. Make your first tangible step by standing. Lord Jesus, you see us. You see us here. Here we are, we're standing. We're standing because we believe that you can move mountains. We're standing because, Father, we, we want so desperately for you to move in us and to move through us. And I thank you, Father, that nothing is impossible for you. As we stand here before you, Father, we're declaring that we are going to step into these dreams that you put in our hearts, these callings. We're going to step into the mountains that we're so terrified of. We're going to confront them. We're going to lean into them in Jesus' name. And Father, we pray that you'd guide us as to the next step. We're going to be faithful with this step. What is our next step? Open our eyes to see, Father. Open our ears to hear. And we'll give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You can all stand, please.